And you can take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. And if you're using these black Bibles that we have scattered underneath the seats throughout the sanctuary, uh, you're going to find that on page 917, Ephesians chapter 1. So, up until, um, up until about a few years ago, I had a reoccurring sin problem as a pastor, and uh, it can still uh, crop up every now and then if I'm not on guard, uh, but there was a time where this happened on a pretty regular basis, where Sunday afternoon would be the most depressing time of the week for me, because that was the time where I would have just finished preaching my sermon. Now, if I felt like I didn't mess up the message too bad, I might actually feel pretty upbeat for the rest of the day. But then there would be other days where I felt like I really botched it. And there's a lot of days like that. And sometimes in my weakest moments, I would spiral into a day of depression and despair because of that. Just thinking that I'm worthless thinking, who's going to want to listen to Deemer Webb preach anymore, Uh, thinking that this church must surely wish that they had a different pastor. Now, one of the reasons why this kind of thinking is a problem is because in moments like that, I'm having an identity crisis. I'm building my identity on how good of a preacher that I think I am, uh, or how good of a preacher I think you think I am. I'm building my identity and drawing my sense of happiness and well-being from those things, and that kind of thinking is not just off-base, that kind of thinking is satanic. Last week, we began a sermon series through this great book of Ephesians called Identity Matters, Who You Think You Are Matters, and Ephesians discloses to us as Christians who we really are in Christ. Now, we all have what I would call secondary identities. You know, I'm a, I'm a dad, or I'm a mom, or I'm a husband or wife, or I'm a teacher, or I'm an American. And there's nothing wrong with recognizing those secondary identities. But when I'm discussing identity, I'm talking about the core of who you are. I'm talking about identity with a capital I. Who you think you are at the core really matters. And, and if you see one of your secondary identities at the core of of who you are, then you're going to open up the door to all kinds of problems. Tim Keller defines sin as building your identity, uh, your self-worth, your happiness on anything other than God. Uh, Keller says instead of telling them that they are sinning because they are sleeping with their girlfriends or boyfriends, I tell them that they are sinning because they're looking to their careers and romances to save them, to give them everything that they should be looking for in God. And this idolatry leads to drivenness and addictions and severe anxiety and obsessiveness and envy of others and resentment. And I think Keller hits the nail on the head here because sin is not just some sort of activity that you do. It's much more than that. Among other things, it has to do with who you think you are, who you think God is in relation to who you are, and what you think you really need in light of all of those things, and living in response to that. And so, discovering and rooting your life and your true identity is not just a matter of theological academics. It's a matter of survival, of spiritual survival. As Paul Tripp says, when you have confusion of identity, you are a sitting duck for sin's insanity. 
Understanding your identity in Christ is critical in regards to living for God and having victory over sin in your life. That's why at the end of Ephesians 1, Paul prays for the Ephesian church. He prays that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. He's praying that they might really get this, that they might really grasp these deep things so that the theology of identity he gives in chapters 1 and 3 lays the foundation for the practical Christian living that he lays out in chapters 4 through 6. Because Paul knows that there is something about you knowing the truth about who you are that will set you free. So now, let's discover more of that truth. Please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading and the hearing of the precious and perfect words of our great and glorious God. Now, the focus, focus of the sermon is going to be on verses 7 through 14, but I want to read the prior verses for context. And even though I'm not going to be expositing Paul's prayer in verses 15 through 23, I'm going to follow Paul's lead and pray those verses over you, the congregation. So let's start at verse 1. Apostle Paul writes, in jail, chained to a Roman guard, but he writes it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth." In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory." Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the faith of so many people in this room who have trusted in Christ for salvation. And in light of that, I pray that you, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, might give the people of Harbin's church, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of God, having the eyes of their hearts enlightened so that Harbin's church may know what is the hope to which you have called them, uh, what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, 
and what is the immeasurable greatness of your power towards us who believe according to the working of your great might that you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the age to come and you put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We ask for your help and blessing on this time. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, last week, Paul unveiled three glorious truths about the identity of the Christian, uh, that you've been chosen by God the Father, that you've been adopted by God the Father, that you are delighted in by God the Father, but Paul is not done. He's got more incredible news, and he now reveals to us even more great truths. And the first thing that I want you to see in our text today is that you are redeemed. You are redeemed. Look what he says in verse 7, in him we have redemption. Redemption is not the most common word in our vocabulary anymore, but in the first century it was very common and it was often associated with slavery. Now, back then they did not have modern bankruptcy laws like chapter 11, so the man who was in debt would sell himself into slavery to pay off that debt. But if a family member heard about your slavery, he could, he could actually redeem you. He could buy you back, and he could set you free from slavery. And the New Testament picks up on this language. Jesus said that anyone who sins is a slave to sin. Slaves first to the power of sin, and that the unredeemed person is under the control of sin, and he can't obey God, and he doesn't want to obey God. And therefore, we're also slaves to the penalty of sin, because we owe God an incalculable debt which we'll spend an eternity paying off in hell. So that's at the core of our identity before salvation. We were enslaved sinners, not just in chains, but on death row. As a matter of fact, in the very next chapter, in chapter 2, we will see next time that Paul says that we were by nature children of wrath. And, and, and salvation here is described in terms of God paying a redemption price and setting slaves free. But what does that mean? If, if slavery means being in bondage to sin, what, is, what does freedom mean? Our country is built on the concept of freedom, and freedom today in America is often equated with sheer autonomy. It's seen as me having the right to do virtually whatever I want. Don't tell me what I can do. Don't tell me what I can't do. Don't tell me what I can and cannot say. This is America. I'm free. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to chart my own course. I'm a free man. That's how Americans view freedom. That is not how the Bible views freedom. God has set us free, but we are not free to be autonomous. We are free to be slaves to God. As Scripture says in the book of Romans, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves 
of righteousness. So the scriptures give us a shocking revelation that there is no such thing as an autonomous, independent person. Every single person on the planet is a servant and has a master. And man, pre-salvation, is a slave to sin and Satan. Now, if you're not a Christian, you need to know that. And that might be offensive to you, but my goal really is not to avoid offense as much as it is to love you and tell you the truth. Now, on the flip side, if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, you need to know that you are a slave also. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 says that you are not your own. And the context of that statement in 1 Corinthians 6 comes from a warning to the church to flee from sexual immorality. And I got to tell you, in America, sexual freedom is one of the biggest sacred cows today, isn't it? I mean, you, you can get away with a lot of things in this country, but once you start trampling on or criticizing somebody's sexual choices, those are fighting words. Just get ready for a battle. How dare you try to restrict my erotic liberty? Consenting adults uh, uh, should, should be able to do whatever they want to do. You don't tell me what to do. And, and this attitude has even crept into churches where you have people identifying as Christians and they're indulging in pornography or they're indulging in sexual activity outside of marriage. And some might even justify it by saying, hey, we're not legalists. We're free in Christ. You can't judge me. But the Scriptures forcefully push back on that and tell us that you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Notice there in that Scripture that Paul tells the Corinthian church to glorify God in their bodies, to honor Him by only expressing their their sexuality in ways that God has intended. But notice something else, though. This is really interesting. Notice that that Paul doesn't just give you a command in a vacuum. He he doesn't just say, don't do that. It's bad. Don't do it. He does more than that. He, He gives a reason, and he roots it in your new identity. He says, you may think your body belongs to you, You may think that you are autonomous, but you aren't. You're not your own. You've been purchased. You've been bought. So, for that reason, on the basis of that, glorify God in your body. God is your new owner. God is your new master. You see, you used to be a slave to sin. You are still a slave, but you've you've transferred masters now, and you're a slave to God. You are free to serve Him. And, and, and believe me, having God as your slave master is much better than having sin. And, and some of you know that as you think about your life and your past life enslaved to sin and all of the, of the heartache and turmoil uh, and, and consequences that it caused and all the misery of sin. That's one of the things that drove me to Christ in the first place. I, I got tired of being a slave to that slave master. So biblical, biblical freedom is not doing whatever you want. Biblical freedom is doing what God wants. That's freedom. It's living according to the purpose that He has designed you for. And biblical freedom is increasingly experienced as God changes our hearts more and more, and we begin to want what He wants more and more. That's freedom. You're free because you've been purchased and redeemed by God. 
Now, I guess the first century family member who hears about his enslaved relative would maybe go and go to the local temple and pay for that person to be redeemed, and he probably used gold and silver. What price did God pay to make you his own? Go back to Ephesians 1 and look at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. Because we were slaves who were also sinners, God said the debt that we owed God, the penalty we deserved, was death and hell. There's no way that we could pay the price on our own in this life, which is why hell, by the way, is forever. So Jesus comes, and He pays the redemption price. And as He hung on that cross, with blood pouring out of His veins… God the Father poured out His, the, the, the hellish wrath that you and I should have gotten, He poured it out on Jesus. That, that's, that's exactly why Jesus came. Jesus didn't come just, just to be some kind of moral teacher to, to teach you ethics, and, and that's what some people believe about, about Jesus. But Jesus Himself gives you His mission statement. He says, for even though the Son of Man came not to be served, but he came to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. His life, his blood was the ransom price to release you from slavery. You've been bought by God. He owns you. As a matter of fact, if you're still in Ephesians 1, you can look down at verse 13. He says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You were sealed. That's very, very interesting language. In the, in the ancient world, an owner announced his possessions by putting his special seal on it, his special mark on it. Perhaps the, the closest equivalent that we can think of today or that I can think of today is, is cattle branding. And what does cattle branding indicate? It indicates owner, ownership and protection. And sometimes uh, slaves in the first century, they would have a mark of identification on them signifying whom they belonged to and who was responsible to protect and provide for them. And Paul is essentially saying that you, Christian, you have been marked, you have been sealed with the Spirit. God has put His stamp of ownership and protection on you. Now, this is not the only time in the Bible that we run into this idea of of people being marked, God's people being marked. Um, And we see in the Old Testament, we we see it in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, you you see that everyone has a mark. Uh, they, They either have the mark of the beast, Satan's mark, or they have the mark of the lamb, Jesus' mark. If you have the mark of the beast, you you have the beast's protection, and you can do whatever the beast allows you to do. You can buy and sell and live in the corrupt world system with the full support of the beast. The problem is is that if you have the mark of the beast, you'll have to face the wrath of the lamb. On the flip side, you have others in Revelation who have the mark of the lamb on them. And if you've got the mark of the lamb, then that means you belong to the lamb, and so you have the lamb's protection and the lamb's provision. But guess what that means? It means you'll have to face the wrath of the beast, the wrath of Satan, who always opposes God's people. The point is that everybody is owned by someone. Uh, no one is autonomous. 
No one is their own Lord and master, and everyone faces somebody's wrath. Everybody in this room will face somebody's wrath, somebody's opposition. So choose this day which wrath you'll get based on whom you belong to. Just remember, as you're thinking about that choice, the wrath of the Lamb is far more devastating and terrifying and horrible than the wrath of the beast. And unlike the wrath of the beast, whose fury is spent in a moment, the wrath of the Lamb is forever in eternity. Uh, The apostle John writes this horrifying verse, that the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, those worshipers of the beast, whoever receives the mark of its name, whoever has that seal, those who are owned by the slave master of the beast, Satan. This this is why Jesus says elsewhere, "Don't, don't fear those who kill the body, but fear him rather who can destroy both body and soul in hell. But for those of us who have been bought and purchased by the blood of the Lamb, we have God's mark, we have God's seal, which is the Holy Spirit who, Paul goes on to say in verse 14, is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. In, um, in our theology reading group on Thursday, we discussed the chapter in, in systematic theology in, in that book, we discussed the chapter on the doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, where a believer is, when a believer is saved, he is simultaneously baptized in the Spirit And the evidences of spirit baptism are a changed life, a new heart with new desires. The Spirit is the one who causes you to be born again. And this Holy Spirit, Paul says here, is the guarantee of your inheritance in God. Uh, Later on in Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 30, Paul writes that with the Spirit of God, we are sealed for the day of redemption. In other words, we are owned by our Lord and are under His protection until the great day of redemption. As Jesus elsewhere says, you'll never perish. You'll never be snatched from the Father's hand. He will hold you fast. Salvation received will will never be salvation lost. His mark of, of ownership, His seal of protection is on you forever. And the most important thing that you are protected from is not the wrath of the devil, but the wrath of God, because God's wrath has been satisfied in the redemption price Jesus paid, which means that we are now forever forgiven. And that's my next observation about this section of Scripture is that you are forgiven. This is another important part of your identity. You are a forgiven person if you're in Christ. Verse 7 again, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. So forgiveness, you have forgiveness. What's that? What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is not denying reality. Some people think that's what forgiveness is. It's not saying what was done in the past actually was not done. It's not not turning a blind eye or, or just kind of sweeping things under the rug to pretend like it never happened. That would be a lie. And forgiveness is not saying that the evil that was done was okay and not a big deal. That would also be a lie. The the evil that you did is a big deal. Instead, forgiveness is deciding not to to hold someone's sin over their head anymore. 
It's, it's refusing to continue to throw back someone's sin in their face over and over and over again and accuse them over and over and over again and vindictively punish them for it. And God is able to not hold your sins over your head anymore because he held them over Jesus' head. Your sin was imputed or transferred to Christ and punished in him. And the good news of the gospel tells us that when we receive Christ and when we're united to him by faith, his righteousness is imputed to us. And so when when God looked at Jesus on the cross, he saw your sin. And when God looked at you, when he looks at you now, he sees you clothed with Christ's righteousness. Now, that that is that's important uh, to, to let that sink in, uh, if you're a believer, to, to really grasp hold of that truth, because there are many Christians that carry around a truckload of guilt. They are paralyzed by it. They, they are depressed about all the bad things that they have done in the past. They cannot move forward. They cannot enjoy life because they are wallowing in the guilt of the things that they have done, sometimes even decades ago. And they just continuously get haunted by those things. They just keep coming back. And maybe there's somebody here in this room, you're in that situation. You are are haunted by these things that you have done. And, And even though you have received Christ, you still hear the whispering voices of accusation that say, you did that. You're guilty. God will never accept you. Who, who do you think you are? God, God, God can't use you. Uh, y- your life is forever ruined. Y- you're not totally forgiven. Maybe if you do a little bit more to kind of make up for the, for the past, maybe then, if you're lucky, he'll receive you. And you might think that those voices are your attempts to be humble. You might think that it's just evidence that you, you take your sin more seriously than others because there, there can be something per, that, that perversely sounds um, spiritual about that kind of talk. But in actuality, those voices are satanic. And to agree with them is to be a co-conspirator alongside the devil against the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the main way that the devil attacks us is through accusations and guilt. That's where his fangs are, and he's like a prosecuting attorney. Even that name devil or Satan kind of carries that idea of a a prosecuting attorney, of of an accuser. Um, When we we first run across that name Satan, it's, it's in the book of Job, and really, literally, in the, in the Hebrew, he's called the Satan. Uh, it, it's more like a title. It's kind of like his job. It's his job description. Now, part of God's redemption plan is to silence the devil's accusations. And we see a beautiful picture of this in Zechariah chapter 3. In Zechariah chapter 3, we see Satan doing what he does best pointing fingers, accusing, bringing up sin. And and let's see in Zechariah 3 how God deals with Satan's accusations. Zechariah 3, verse 1, then he 
Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now, Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity, your sin, away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. Now, what's the the point here? Was, Was Satan's accusations false? Was Satan lying about Zechariah's sin? No, absolutely not. The Scripture says Zechariah's clothes were filthy. Satan was right. Zechariah was unrighteous. Zech- uh, I'm sorry, Joshua. Josh- I'm, sure, I'm sure Joshua was, uh, Zechariah was a sinner too. But Joshua here, the high priest, his clothes are filthy, filthy and, and, and he is unrighteous. But the, but the point is that The devil's accusations have no power over the one whom God is determined to make clean. And so we've got this this imagery of Joshua having these disgusting excrement-covered clothes removed from him, and he's got, he has fresh, new, clean clothes that are put on him. So, So now, Joshua is viewed as clean and righteous, but it's not a righteousness of his own. Uh, His own righteousness was the the filthy clothes. That was the best that he could do. Joshua is instead now covered with a righteousness with clothes that do not belong to him, but belong to God. So, if you are in Christ this morning… You need to recognize that as the devil accuses you of all of your sins, and if you are like me, there are encyclopedias worth of sins. You need to remember in that moment that the the, the response that the Lord gives to Satan, which is, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord has chosen me. The Lord has chosen Peter. The Lord has chosen Ken. The Lord has chosen Karen. The Lord has chosen Steve. The Lord has chosen Jason. Are they not brands plucked from the fire? Because God has taken you and He's taken me and He's removed our filthy clothes and He's clothed us with new garments the righteousness of Christ, and the clothes are yours forever. You are forever forgiven. This is one of the main differences between Protestant theology and Catholic theology. It's all about clean clothes. How do you get clean clothes? And in Roman Catholicism, you've got to figure it out. You've got to somehow get all the stains out of your clothes yourself through the sacraments, through other works and, and, and it doesn't work. You, you, can't, you can't get the stains out. You, you need new clothes. You need, that, that's, that's, that's the beauty of do, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. You get, you get new clothes directly from God. You're forever forgiven. 
But if you see your identity bound up as, as one who is still under the condemnation of sin, if you see yourself as, as someone so bad that even the blood of Jesus isn't good enough, that's going to affect your whole life. And you're going to be paralyzed with guilt and shame, and you'll be constantly running on the endless treadmill of religious works to try to pay for your own sins. But if you see yourself as someone whose sins, past, present, and future have been washed away by the precious blood of Jesus and, you have, and, and also received His righteousness, you're going to experience the joy and the freedom that comes with not being under the weight of that guilt and that shame anymore. So, so Christian brother, Christian sister, be free. Be, be free of the, of the accusations. Jesus died to silence the accusations. Jesus died to, to shut the devil's mouth and to defang him of his main weapon. So, you are redeemed, you are forgiven, but there's one more important thing I want us to, to think about that this text teaches us, and that's that you are not the main character of the story. You are not the main character of the story. This is an important aspect of your identity that you need to get straight. Back in my younger years, I used to view life as a story. And guess who the star of the show was? You're looking at him. And, and all of y'all would have been the supporting cast. It was all about me. It was all about Deemer. Now, folks, we all have a tendency to do this, uh, to become self-focused where everything around us becomes merely supporting cast, including God. Now, for some, God may be a background character that occasionally makes a cameo. For others, God may be a very important character, just not the central role. And God is my co-pilot. <laughs> now, we're right in viewing life as a story, but Paul is reminding us of something very, very important. Paul is putting us in our place and showing us that Jesus Christ is at the center stage of your story. And he's not just at the center of your story. Paul tells us that the destiny of the cosmos revolves around and is summed up in Jesus Christ. Verse 9, Paul writes, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Now, when Paul uses that word mystery, he, he means something that was once hidden or vaguely understood, but now it's been fully disclosed and revealed in light of what Christ has done through the gospel. And, and what's that mystery? What's that secret that God has graciously allowed us in on? It's that God has a purpose. God has a plan for the fullness of time, and He is deliberately and intentionally ordering and structuring history and purposefully moving things in a specific direction towards a specific goal. And what is that goal? Paul says in verse 10, that goal is to unite all things in Jesus Christ, things in heaven, and things on earth. The Greek word translated as unite is anakephaliosis. That's a mouthful. I had to practice that one. And, but, but its basic meaning 
is to bring something to a main point. Uh, the word also carries the sense of, of reunification or a reestablishing of, of harmony where discord and chaos and division once existed. That beautifully describes the direction that history is marching towards. Ages ago, the heavens and the earth were in harmony and united under Jesus Christ. There was a time when all of the angelic powers obeyed God and, 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 and acknowledged His Lordship. There was a time where man was perfect and holy and at peace with God and in submission to His will. There was a time where the earth was totally perfect. But at some point in the distant past, things went terribly wrong. One of the angelic powers launched a cosmic conspiracy against God, and Satan rebelled against God and seduced our forefather Adam to commit treason and join the revolution. And the reverberations of Adam's sin were nothing short of cataclysmic. Man became alienated from God as, as all of Adam's descendants have continued in that sinful rebellion against him. Man became alienated from fellow man, from, from the discord we see between Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, to Cain's murder of, of Abel in Genesis 4, to all of the racism and sexism and wars and conflicts and divisions, all those things that we see going on amongst people today. The Bible says there was also a rupture in the fabric of the universe. Creation itself was spoiled. The earth that yielded its produce for, for Adam before sin now resisted him and produced thorns and thistles. A world that, that used to be at peace now produces earthquakes and tornadoes. Because when Adam fell, all creation fell with him. And we, we, have a, we have a cosmos that is in revolt against its original design and man shakes his fist at God, and man shakes his fist at fellow man, and the Bible calls Satan the god of this world, roaming loose like a lion on the prowl, and death reigns. Now, when we think of salvation and redemption, we tend to personalize it and make it about us. And there is an aspect, of course, that, of that that is personal, of course. But in this mystery that God is disclosing, He is showing us that the stakes are much bigger than we think. There, there's more happening, there's more going on than we ever realize. It's not ultimately about you. It's ultimately about God taking a universe that is being torn apart and fractured by sin and bringing all things back together in their proper place. He, is, he has set in motion a plan where He is now gathering all things together in Jesus, where things, are, where things are now out of alignment due to sin. God is realigning the universe to a proper relationship with Jesus. Paul uses that word anakephaliosis also in Colossians chapter 1, and there it's translated not as unite, but as reconcile. And so Paul writes, for in Him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Through the blood of Jesus, man can be reconciled to God. Uh, that reconciliation includes forgiveness of sins, of course. It includes a recreation of our own sinful natures, bringing it to Christ's conformity, making us more and more like Jesus. But, but there's more. 
um, Paul is going to, in chapter 2, remind his Jewish and Gentile readers that they used to be hostile towards one another, that there used to be this dividing wall uh, between them, there used to be this, this racial animosity between these two groups, but now these two sides have been brought near to one another by the blood of Christ. Because, because Jesus is recreating the harmony between humans that once existed before sin entered the world. But in addition, there's even more than that. Redemption includes a restructuring and recreation of the entire universe. Uh, The entire planet, which Paul describes in Romans as groaning under the weight of sin's curse, will groan no more when Jesus comes and renovates the cosmos, transforming it into the paradise that it once was. Oh, don't you see it? Christianity is so much bigger than ethics. (laughs) That's what so many people think Christianity is all about. Do a few good things and be nice. <laughs> but but what, what, about the, what about the enemies of God? What about humans that persist in their rebellion, uh, who, who refuse to bend the knee to Jesus and refuse to acknowledge His Lordship? What about Satan and his wicked angels who instigated this revolt in the first place? How does anakephaliosis apply to them? Well, there's, there's, there's two ways that Christ will create peace and harmony according to the Scriptures. One is through the removal of hostility and corruption through the redemption and spiritual recreation of His people. The other way is pacification through conquest. The Bible is clear that the Lord Jesus Christ will return. We, we just celebrated His first coming during Christmas, he's, he's coming back, and He will conquer all of His enemies. And as in ancient times, you would, you would have the conquered enemy publicly acknowledge before all the lordship of the conqueror and pay homage to Him, you have Paul now giving us the same kind of picture. He gives it to us in Philippians 2 as he looks forward to a future reckoning where Paul describes that God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our biggest problem, our biggest problem is that we have tried to assume a false identity we have arrogantly declared ourselves to be Lord, to, throw, to try to throw off the yoke of His Lordship. But the Scriptures are promising you that every creature in the universe will come to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and bow before Him. You can bank on it. It's going to happen. Everyone will bow before Him. And you can, now, you can do that now with joy and gladness, or you'll be forced to your knees when the king returns and rounds up all the traitors and rebels, and, 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 and when they are defeated, all unrepentant humans who have ever lived, uh, every Muslim who has worshipped Allah, every Hindu who has embraced a pantheon of millions of gods, everyone who's followed the path of the Buddha, every Jew who has rejected the Messiah, 
Everyone who has persisted in mocking Jesus, everyone who gave lip service to Jesus but refused to follow Him, every dictator and king and president, every atheist, every single demon, no matter how fearsome and powerful, and even Satan himself, all of these will drop the knee, bowing low in homage. They will all confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And it will be the last thing that they say before they are thrown into outer darkness, banished from the paradise of God. At the beginning of this message, I told you that my depression and despair over preaching a bad sermon is satanic. The reason why it is satanic is that the whole outlook is Deemer-centered. It's making it all about me as if I'm Lord. It's putting me and my efforts and my glory at the center of all things, and that is at the heart of Satanism. Scripture's telling us here a different story. Jesus Christ is the star of the movie. He's the main character. He's the hero. He's the king. He's the center of all things. And the, and the purpose of life is not about getting Jesus to bend to our plans, preferences, and priorities. But, but the, the point is about us aligning ourselves with His plans and His priorities. From eternity past, the plan of God has always been the enthronement and exaltation, not of you, but of His Son. If the core of your identity is bound up in yourself… If you're moving through life with tunnel vision as if it's all about you, that's going to have dramatic consequences in your life and the lives of those around you. As, you. as you find yourself fighting against the purposes of God and Jesus Christ, and that leads to futility and a wasted life in time and in eternity, you will find yourself on the wrong side of history. But if we see ourselves rightly… If we put our lives in context, the story of our lives will be viewed within the greater context of God's amazing and beautiful and eternal story of redemption, His plan to unite and reconcile all things to Jesus in heaven and on earth, and that changes everything. That, that kind of vision changes everything. It changed everything for Paul. Paul's writing this letter from prison his wrist chained to a Roman guard, his body confined, his immediate future uncertain. Here's a man who has suffered more for the gospel than any of us have, mistreated and abused and slandered and jailed more than once. And the temptation for any of us in that situation would be anger. It would be depression. It would be despair. But but what is Paul's state of mind as he's writing this? Have you picked it up in, in this chapter? Have you been able to discern Paul's psychological state of mind in Ephesians chapter 1? It's joy. That, that's, that's his state of mind. It's blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places to the praise of His glory. That's, that's his mindset. In jail. Are you a lunatic, Paul? Are you out of your mind? Uh, Paul, think about all the mess that you have been through. 
Think, think about the beatings, the, the, the scars that are all over your body and the torment that you've been under ever since you started following this Jesus person. Have you, Paul, been knocked on the head so many times that you are out of touch with reality now? John Stott wrote that at this point, it may be wise to pause a moment and consider how much all of us need to develop Paul's broad perspective. Though his wrist was chained and his body confined, his heart and mind inhabited eternity. He, he peered back before the foundation of the world in verse 4, and he looked ahead onward to the fullness of time, verse 10. Stott goes on to say, as for us, how restricted our vision is in comparison with, with Paul's. How small is our mind, how narrow is our horizons, easily we slip into a preoccupation with our own petty little affairs. But we need to see time in the light of eternity and our present in the light of our past election and future perfection. Then if we shared the apostle's perspective, we would also share his praise. Life would become worship and we would bless God constantly for having blessed us so richly in Christ. There, there is a, we talked about this in Sunday school this morning. Uh, you've heard the saying that he's so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good. That's a, that's a common saying, and a lot of people believe that, the idea that you're just, you're just so just kind of just pie in the sky, always thinking about heaven, that you're useless in regards to a, a needy world around you. And, and, and that, 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 that saying, he's so earthly-minded, he's no heavenly good, is very unbiblical, because the Bible actually teaches the exact opposite. The Bible teaches that those who are the most heavenly-minded bring about the most earthly good. Case in point, Paul. I mean, we don't doubt the good that he's done, right, for the gospel. It is only when you are so heavenly-minded, when your identity is grounded in the truths of who God says you are and what your destiny in Christ actually is, only then will you go to the mission field and risk beheading for the sake of the gospel because you know that's not the end of the story. You know something so much better is coming. Paul is more in touch with reality than often we are. Uh, Paul gets it. And no matter what is happening in his life, even when he is suffering, even when he is mistreated, even when it seems like things are spinning out of control, it's not all purposeless, it's not all meaningless, and it's not accidental. Paul knows that we are moving towards a time where all things will be made right and new. Are you grieved over broken relationships? Are you mourning injustice? Are you weary of the heartbreak in this world? Are you broken by sickness? Are you afraid of death? The scriptures, my friend, are, are pushing you to look beyond the horizon of the hardships of life, to look beyond that towards where all of this is headed, towards, that, towards the great anakephaliosis. For the scriptures say, that for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. And that would include the invisible satanic powers, by the way. 
For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So, and and I'm, I'm wrapping this up now. I'm bringing this to a landing in case you're looking at your watch. The point here is that all of history is marching forward to a specific destination determined by God. God is orchestrating everything in a way that is getting us closer and closer and closer to that end. History has a destination, and that destination is Jesus with the entire cosmos submitted to his lordship. And so, and so then, in light of those great truths there in 1 Corinthians 15, then the, the, Paul's application right after that is, therefore, my beloved brothers, on the basis of that, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Your identity, your story is bound up in a bigger and, 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 and grander and more glorious story, the story of Christ, our King, our Savior, our hero who loves you more than you love yourself. He has graciously chosen to let you in on this mystery, on this secret, that something much better is coming for you and and for all believers. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, if, if you are rejecting the Lord Jesus, know that if you persist in rebellion, after you've wasted your life trying to be Lord yourself, that a day will come where you will acknowledge the Lordship of Christ, but You'll, you'll do it as a subdued and conquered enemy, and you'll be forever banished from the paradise to come. But the good news is that Jesus lovingly and graciously offers amnesty now. Don't, don't wait for later. Today's the day of salvation. He offers amnesty now for all outlaws and traitors. I'm an ex-outlaw and traitor, so I'm not like saying this as some self-righteous person thinking I'm better than other people. I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I was an outlaw and traitor who, who received the offer a pardon, who received the amnesty. He offers it to all outlaws and traitors who will confess their sins and trust in Him. And in Christ is found redemption through His blood. And Christ is found forgiveness no matter how bad you've been. And Christ is found an incredible, uh, glorious, never-ending story full of joy and satisfaction and peace. Uh, we get a little taste of that now, and it'll be uh, experienced to the maximum in eternity as we will forever possess and enjoy the greatest treasure that anyone could ever possess, which is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Because in the end, it's all about Him. And thank God for that. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your holy and inspired Word. And I pray that the, the Word that has been unleashed this morning, not my Word, but the words of Scripture, my, my words are meaningless. My, my words don't offer life and hope, yours do, but that that word would take root in the hearts of people in this room, of men and women and boys and girls, and would bear great fruit, and that those in this room who are believers, but maybe have stumbled a bit in recent times, may they now return to you with repentance and May they seek to have their heart and their priorities and their, everything in their life realigned back to you, towards you, with you at the center of all things. Father, I pray for those here 
who might be unbelievers, Father, I pray that the word that was heard would bear fruit unto salvation and that anyone here who needs to would now call on the name of the Lord and experience your salvation and everything that is offered in the Lord Jesus Christ to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.